Welcome to Sometimes There's Side Eye, a podcast about two friends having real and unfiltered conversations about dogs and people. Listen as we talk about our lives with dogs, training, behavior, share some laughs, and a whole lot of banter. I'm Heather. And I'm Christy. And what are we talking about today, Christy? This week, we're going to talk about responsible rescue. And let me tell you all, Christy is so excited about this topic. (laughs) I am. I am. Oh, man. Already. (laughs) To be fair, I poke fun at Christy about this because it's a really difficult topic and it's emotionally charged. Yeah. And so we'll just put the caveat out right at the beginning that this is a difficult topic. We are not saying we're experts in it. These are our ideas about responsible rescue based on what we've seen and experienced and our beliefs of what's right and wrong. And I will say we've discussed this. We've discussed it a million times. Ad nauseum. Yeah. We've, we've discussed it over the last four years. Well, probably since longer, honestly. Mm -hmm. And Even recently, as we were discussing doing this episode, I wouldn't say we are aligned perfectly. No. But that's what makes this podcast different and and I feel like more fun, maybe. I don't know. We hope so. (laughs) We don't always have the same exact views and that's okay. And that's why we want to have these discussions because being friends with Heather makes me think in a different way. And I hope her being friends with me makes her think through things differently as well. I think we challenge each other. And that was part of why we wanted to start the podcast was to challenge how people think and to give them differing perspectives and to hear us maybe have differing perspectives, but still be able to be friends. Absolutely. Yeah. And so you might have different perspectives than us, but we hope that we challenge some of your ideas and just make you think Mm -hmm. through this topic. So Yeah. And we're not flying blind here. I mean, I adopted my first dog from a municipal shelter in 2004 and I've been a rescue volunteer for private nonprofit rescues. I've been a county shelter volunteer. I've been deployed by HSUS. Christy, you can, you know, talk about some of your experience. So we aren't people who are flying blind here. These are, these are experiences that we've had and watched and kind of how we've started to think about things over the years and then just reading and learning and, you know, all that over time. Yes. Yeah. Our experiences definitely shape us and and shape how we see things. So definitely not flying blind here. So first of all, um, let's define. So we'll, we'll talk about two different things, sheltering or shelters. When we say shelters, we're talking about open intake shelters. So your county animal care and control, those types of large municipal municipal shelters and then rescue is a little different in that rescues are typically a nonprofit, private nonprofit, and oftentimes they're linked together. Rescues often pull from the shelter, but know that there is a difference. And so as we're talking about that, I just want to kind of define that right up front for Absolutely. people so that there's not confusion. If, and we'll if try to be clear. And if we're talking about rescue, private rescue, we'll talk, we'll say rescue. And if we're talking about a shelter, we will say shelter. So let's dive in. We want to start out by saying 
not all rescues are the same. Mm. Um, And that's why we felt like it was important to do this episode. We feel that there are ethical rescues. And then we feel like there are some rescues that are not needing the mark of taking care of dogs in the way that we would expect mm-hmm. a rescue to. So we wanted to kind of address those issues. Well, and we also, to me, I think it's really important that we support rescues who are doing a good job. We yes. want rescues who are trying their best and setting the bar really high to be the rescues who are getting the funding and are able to continue to do what is the good work they're doing. We want yeah. everyone to to know that there is a difference between ethical and unethical rescue. And when you're yeah. looking for a new dog and you're you're like I'm set on rescuing and that's the route you're going to go, we want people to understand that it is important that you do research and that you're supporting the rescues that are trying their best so that they can continue to do a really good job. Yeah. And I know a lot of people say, I mean, as long as a dog is getting saved, why does it matter? But it does because it does. we want morality yes. to be hand in hand with rescue. And we want ethics to be hand in hand with rescue. And if you support a rescue that's not ethical and not doing things right, then you're putting your money where it could help more dogs. And the dogs are suffering. The dogs are suffering because if a rescue is continuing to make money and they're not ethical, then the level of care that we expect to see and how those dogs are treated and taken care of is not acceptable by any means. And if that rescue continues to get funds, then guess what? They get to continue to take in more and more dogs. And those dogs, I do believe in many situations truly are suffering. And that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Just like everybody is against puppy mills, we need to band together and be against irresponsible rescuing yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. Do we want to jump in with what our thoughts are on cornerstones of ethical rescue? Absolutely. Yeah. Why okay. Don't we start us out. Oh my goodness. I get to start. Oh, I feel so yeah. special. Okay. <laughs> so it was you or me. I'm going to use an example to start off. Okay. I'm going to use the example of when we adopted cash. When we adopted cash, it was from a rescue in Arizona. We had lived in Arizona for about six weeks. We still had Pennsylvania driver's licenses and had not even turned over everything. And that may sound like a random point, but it'll make sense later. So we cruise in to this rescue. We found him on PetFinder. And his description and bio really struck an emotional chord with me and my husband. So we contacted the group and I said, we would really love to come and meet him. Can we make an appointment? We went to see him about 24 hours later. We drove up to the private home and everything was nice. It was clean. Everything looked great. We met Cash and my husband played with him and he was interacting with other dogs and everything looked good. But we also had a situation in our home, as everyone knows, where we had two dogs that didn't get along. So we didn't want to rush into a scenario, right? We had not planned to take him home that day. We had driven our little car and he was a Rottweiler. We meet him. We love him. 
We tell her that we would like to go home. We would like to think about it. He had been in rescue for 24 hours at that point. He had come in, they put him on pet finder. I reached out right away. He had not been to a veterinarian. He had had no testing whatsoever. Okay. I tell her that we want to go home and think about it. And she told me that there was someone else coming tomorrow. And if we wanted him, we had to decide right now. So I felt pressured Mm -hmm. and we said, okay, we're going to do it. We filled out. I mean, I'm going to call it an application, but it was a piece of paper. She takes our information, which was a Pennsylvania driver's license, did not have, we had no documentation that showed our current address that we were even residents of the state. Okay. We fill out this sad little piece of paper. I pay her the money. We make arrangements to pick him up the next day and we leave. And that was it. I came the next day. I picked him up. I took him home. That was it. So he was not neutered when you received he him. Was intact. He was not, he did not have he any had, shots. had no veterinary care. Yep. Mm-hmm. He had been in their program. And he was a puppy. Yeah. He was about eight months old. Basically he was with them for 48 hours, all said and done. Mm-hmm. So let's think about this. I am whoever. I could have made up anything. You are now adopting out an intact male Rottweiler to somebody, Mm -hmm. handing them over and sending them on their way. Now, for me, I'm an educated person on the breed. So I had specific reasons why I actually wanted to leave him intact for health reasons. So to me, it was a huge plus. I was like, this is amazing. I am a responsible person. I would never in a million years breed him. But the fact that they did it is unbelievable to me. And then we ended up finding out, because of course we took him to the vet, that he had Giardia. So now we had exposed our other dogs to Giardia unknowingly. And that was the next time I had communication with her. I emailed her to let her know that he had tested positive for Giardia and that she needed to be aware because she had other dogs he was interacting with. And absolutely it's an exposure problem. And the correspondence was essentially like, well, that sucks. Definitely didn't come from here. Good luck. Hmm. Yep. Where would it have come from then? <laughs> I mean, like, I guess it came like your from other my house, Christy. Magically yeah. had Giardia that nobody knew about. Yeah, yeah. And based on hmm. the other things that had occurred, I'm going to say that the likelihood of coming from that side versus my side, yeah. I relate this, oh, and we paid a $375 adoption fee and we had they had him for less than 48 hours. I would absolutely qualify them as flippers. Absolutely. Yeah. So just to define, uh, a flipper is somebody typically in rescue, although they don't have to be, who takes in puppies because puppies are easy to get adopted back out and they sell the puppies. And so there are some pluses and minuses to this. There's downfalls and, and plus sides for rescue. The plus side is it's an easy turnover mm-hmm. for rescues, which is why it's done. And they can get a puppy for next to nothing or or maybe half the puppy surrendered mm-hmm. free of charge. Mm-hmm. And then they flip it and sell it to someone. Mm-hmm. So they make, you know, a hundred percent profit. Mm-hmm. Whatever they get in is just all profit. 
responsible rescue is instead going to take that dog, that puppy, vet it, mm-hmm. and then and make sure it. that it's healthy, spay mm-hmm. and neuter. So you should be getting a lot of bang for your buck, mm-hmm. honestly, with a puppy. I know my one friend was like, well, it's like a $400 adoption fee. I was like, okay, let's lay this out. How much is it for you to spay your dog? Mm-hmm. And so then we researched that and she was like, oh, it's $250 for me just mm-hmm. to spay my dog. And I was like, okay. And then how much are the shots? Oh, well, those are another hundred. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, so you're basically donating $50 to the yeah. rescue. And, and the rescue. Like, oh, with that. The rescue has to house the dogs, the mom and the puppies, and they have to take care of everybody. And there are many rescues that we personally know who are doing socialization protocols and they're going above and beyond to make sure that the moms aren't stressed, the puppies aren't stressed, even though they're in a rescue type of environment. So people who are doing it ethically, they're going above and beyond. That is not what we're talking about when we're talking about a rescue who's flipping. This rescue, and I use that in air quotes, that cash came from, they are literally flipping dogs to make a profit. Now, let's think about what they actually have invested in cash's adoption. They had the time and gas that it took them to go and pick him up. Actually, I believe he was surrendered, so I don't even think they went anywhere for him now that I'm thinking about it. Um, So they had like two meals. So they had like two meals in him. Yep. Mm -hmm. And a little emotional terrorism to get him adopted by me. And that was their investment. Yeah. (laughs) And it worked because he came to us and he had a fantastic home. But what if I hadn't been who I am? What if the supposed person, I don't even know if that was real, that was supposed to come and see him the next day had been, oh, and by the way, he came in with his sister and she was getting adopted out intact as well. Just forgot about that. What if I had not been responsible? Cash was a nice looking dog. You could have gone and taken and bred him and made some money off those puppies. That is not an example of anything ethical or responsible. Mm -mm. No, no. Contributing to further rescue needs, yep. like further dogs needing rescued, just everything is bad it's just in all that wrong. situation. It's all, it's all bad. Yeah. Yeah. Now that we gave that little scenario, here are some things that I expect to see from an ethical or responsible rescue. And again, we're talking about a private rescue group that's a nonprofit or a 501c3. Well, I expect them to have a nonprofit status, to have a 501c3 status. I would not, unless it's a rehoming, private rehoming situation that we already discussed in a previous episode, I would not go to a person who is continuously adopting and rehoming or adopting out dogs and adopt a dog from them unless they have a 501c3 status. Do you want to talk further about that? You're shaking your head. Yeah, I agree. I think the 501c3 status is so important. I am thinking of one rescue in Arizona that started out as a middleman. Uh-huh. Um, he's a radio DJ. And so he had a lot of connections. Uh-huh. And so he started with just, hey, my friend really wants a golden retriever puppy. And this person has reached out and said, Hey, I know you love dog. We have this golden retriever puppy that we cannot handle. And he was like, Hey, let me make this connection. But that's for making you. a connection. That's right. Once he did it a few times, then everyone came. So then at one point he was like, 
we're not a 501c3 yet, but we are working through Because it takes time. It does take time. So there are some exceptions if they could explain why maybe yes. they're working through that. But for the most part, they should be yeah. a nonprofit status. Absolutely. Which goes to the next point, which is transparency. If you are going somewhere to potentially adopt a dog, and age doesn't matter, I'm just going to say dog ranging from any age. If you're going to a group to adopt a dog and you feel like they're hiding something or they don't want to answer your questions directly, or you just get the vibe that they're not transparent, their social media isn't transparent, anything like that, that's a red flag for me. I just, what are you trying to hide? And for me, if I'm going to adopt a dog, I want to get a good match for my family so it can be a lifelong companionship. And so I want to feel like the group that I'm going to understands the dog and understands everything about what I'm going for. And if they're being shady and I feel like they're not answering my questions directly, that makes me feel bad about the whole thing. Because if they can't even answer about their nonprofit status with an open dialogue, then what else are they hiding? Yeah, definitely. So there are some rescues, and I'll put that in quotations, purchase from puppy mill auctions. Mm. So there are, there's auctions for dogs. Dun, dun, dun. Um, and I understand their thought process. It, like, let me say, I am pretty good at trying to connect the dots because I think people are typically rational. And so I try to connect the dots of what are they thinking and what were their intentions. You so are I do very good at that. The intentions behind it. In their mind, they are rescuing these puppy mill dogs, typically not even puppies, typically full-grown dogs that are bred out or the puppy mill no longer wants them. Or it might not even be a puppy mill, but it, it's typically puppy mill type dogs. So all that to say, there are rescues that go and bid on these dogs and bring them into rescue. I understand in their mind, they are saving these dogs from a worse fate. They are also funding puppy mills. Yes. Like, let's not beat around the bush. That's what your money is going to. Yes. So if we're fighting against them and yet we are funding them, to yeah. me, that's, that's not okay. And what I found is because I have, I have some friends who did adopt a dog that we're pretty sure, but we know she came from a puppy mill and she was a breeder. But when they asked about how they got the dog and where she came from and the rescue, even though they're well-known and well-respected, was very dodgy mm. with their questions. Wouldn't answer what kind of conditions or how they received the dog or what the agreement was with the breeder or anything. And the more they tried to dig, the less information they got. And it was like, well, all you need to know is we took this dog from a puppy mill situation and now she's not in that. And we brought several dogs in from that situation. And that's all they would say. Now, other rescues will say things like, we got this dog we know the breeders in the area. We've asked them, hey, if you ever have a situation, you can't take care of a breeder or you no longer want them in your breeding program, will you surrender them to us? Mm -hmm. So just because it's coming from a breeding situation doesn't mean the rescue's done anything wrong. 
and surrendering is very yes. different than the rescue the purchasing. purchasing dogs. Yes. And just to be clear, when Christy's saying breeder, she's referring to a female dog who is used to breed other dogs. She yes. doesn't mean breeder. Yes. Yeah, to be clear on that. But I see this happen. Well, I haven't personally seen it, but I've done enough research and reading about it. But it does happen and it's not just puppy mills. It'll happen with commercial breeders as well when they're auctioning off. And I know we're in the West Coast, but this is a very real situation in the Midwest and then also on the East Coast where puppy mills and commercial breeding operations are more prominent. I just want you guys to know that I know on the West Coast, this might be a little bit of a foreign concept for people, but here's the thing that I want people to remember. Supply and demand. If commercial breeders and puppy mills are continuing to make money, they are going to continue to exist. That is reality. So if a rescue is going to their auctions and handing over cash, they are saving that dog on the backs of every other dog that comes through that operation. And I have a major problem with that. Yeah. Yeah. Commercial breeding facilities and puppy mills do not care where they get their money from. Yeah. They just care that they get their money. Yeah. So when it comes from rescue, they don't care. It just funds their operation and that's not okay. And the reason that they're auctioning off these mamas is because they can't make money off them anymore. So for them, it's like, oh, we already made all the money off them and that we can, let's just see what we can get for them. Hence why they're auctioned and they'll get every last red cent out of them that they can. But guess where that money goes to buy another mom and start producing or to use another dog that they already have and build another wire cage on top of another one and make another breeder. So it's so much bigger than just saving that one dog who's in front of you. And that idea absolutely trickles down to these unethical rescues that are flipping dogs, that are keeping dogs in terrible situations, that are not evaluating dogs, that don't have an understanding of behavior, that have the dogs in hoarding situations. That all trickles down. In my book, they're all on the same blacklist. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. And the more we support them, the more they can continue to do it. Yes, absolutely. And so I would say maybe the next thing is you mentioned quite a few flipping and hoarding. So I, I would like to go to hoarding because again, the heart probably started in the right place. Mm -hmm. I'm going to help this dog and these dogs and just one more and just one more Mm -hmm. and just one more, even though I don't have space. And it is hard to look at rescues who say, we do not have room, but we'd really like to Mm -hmm. rescue this dog. And then they take the dog without the room. Unfortunately, if you don't have room, it's not ethical for you to take on Mm -hmm. another dog. If you don't have funding to do the vet care, it's not ethical to take that on as a rescue. And I, and I get it. It's such a tight rope that you, you walk and rescue of, can we do one more? Do we have the funding for one more? Do we have the Um, resources? 
yeah do we have the manpower you're walking mm-hmm. a fine line here Christy yeah. you're walking a fine line I know it's walking a fine line. I wish you guys could see Christy's face right now because she's struggling because we here's the thing we know so many people who are in rescue and their heart is bleeding every single moment of the day and what we know that it is not as simple as just oh you don't have the resources don't take that dog because I know and Christy knows that you're getting 75 emails and 62 text messages and 13 phone calls to take that one dog And you are stretching yourself to the absolute brink. We get it. We understand it. But I still say that there have to be ethical standards when it comes to knowing where your line is and when you have exhausted your resources and you have to take a pause. Yeah. Otherwise, the dogs suffer. Yeah. Heather and I both know several rescues that our warehousing dogs. That's a term we use in rescue to warehouse dogs where dogs are just being kept, but nothing more. They're being kept and they're being kept alive, but they're not being adopted out. They're not rotating through and they're not getting the veterinary care, the socialization, the mental stimulation that they need to live healthy lives. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's crueler. Mm. My vet one time told me there are fates far worse than death. Mm. When I had a, when I had a hospice foster, one of my hospice fosters, and I was trying to decide if it was time. And 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 she, when she said that, I thought, wow, this so applies to warehousing with dogs and hoarding situations and, and so many things. So we know it's not black and white, but also if you go and there's dogs stacked on top of each other, or there's 50 dogs in a residential home, that's, that's a hoarding situation. Like mm-hmm. that should be a red flag. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you mean society is not looking kindly on you. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And if you are in the situation where you are that overwhelmed, there is no way that those dogs are getting everything that they need and absolutely neglect is on the table. So now we've gone from, oh, you're a rescue to, oh, you're an unethical rescue to, wow, you need to be looked at for abuse. For abuse. Yeah. I think one important cornerstone is cleanliness too. Oh, yes. That's a good one. If you walk into a rescue and there is poop in kennels and there is things smeared and just look around mm-hmm. at the cleanliness of the situation. Yeah. I mean, That's okay. That's going to tell you a lot. It is. Or if the group does not allow you indoors at their facility, yeah. if they have a facility or a main foster home or something like that. Okay. Can I just like give a little, a little story? Yeah. So there's a local person who is not a 501c3 because her status was revoked and she continues to 
do. I think even saying that she's a rescue is not even fair. She continues to privately rehome dogs and people continue to take dogs from her. And her home is such a travesty. The smell alone, Mm -hmm. her neighbors have made complaints to the HOA. There's barking dogs. If you see the photos that she posts, you can see feces in the background. I mean, seriously, it is not that difficult to get a gut read (laughs) on something like that. Okay. Yeah. And she is able to continue to do this because people keep taking dogs from her and giving her money. And she's taking that money and she's turning it into furthering this. I don't even want to say it's not business. It's a business. She's continuing in business in a completely unethical way on every level on the backs of these dogs. And so if you look at a photo and the house looks like it's a complete wreck and there's poop on the wall and it's, I mean, seriously, stop, just stop, abort, no. If you drive up to a house to meet a dog and you can smell from the front walk, stop, don't do it. Like just let's follow our gut in scenarios like this. Yeah. And, and I'm not talking about, let me be clear. That was an extreme example. (laughs) Puppies poop a lot. Oh my gosh. Yes. And so sometimes that, that tracks through like puppies are gross. You guys, puppies are so gross. Oh, Christy hating on the puppies. Just kidding. Just kidding. Puppies are so cute. Use common sense. Use common sense. Yeah. And You know, something else I want to say, and this is like, I'm trying not to tangent here, but I think most people assume that if someone is doing something like this woman is, that the authorities will certainly take care of her, that the Humane Society and animal cops are coming to her door and they're shutting her down, that someone is watching and making sure that this can't continue. Do not assume that. There are tons of people who are trying to shut this person down and it's not happening. She's doing just enough to hide just enough to be able to continue. So don't assume that just because a rescue or someone is putting dogs out there that, oh, the authorities are certainly keeping tabs on these people and making sure everything is done ethically. Not the case. Yeah, and if you see something that seems off report it absolutely if you're not nobody else is either yeah and they might need one more report they might need one more person who is unrelated to the situation to come across and say hey i saw something that's really not okay yeah yeah and i think a lot of rescues start off really well um, and then get in over their heads sometimes and then it's tough to get back out yeah, because compassion fatigue is real. We we need to is, talk about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very real thing. And here's reality. I was- What is compassion fatigue? Yeah, it's just, okay. Yeah, I was going to do it. So compassion fatigue is essentially where if you're, I mean, it can happen to nurses, it can happen to doctors, it can happen to anyone, where you're essentially just 
exhausted. You are have spent every resource that you have mentally, physically, emotionally, and you just cannot keep going. And compassion fatigue can affect your decision-making skills. It can affect the way that you are moving forward in your life. It can do so many things and it's very real. So we do understand that, but I think that's also part of, oh, I want to run a rescue. Oh, this is my dream. Sit down, think about what your ethics are, write that shit down, put it up on the wall, make sure you check in with yourself, follow it. As you learn, make adjustments, but make sure you're checking in with yourself and you're making sure that you're well as you continue this. And my point of kind of going, talking about that was I used to be a shelter volunteer. I used to go to our municipal shelter and volunteer. And I got to a point where I wasn't feeling good about it. And there are a lot of reasons for that. It wasn't the shelter specifically. It was a lot of personal reasons. It was a lot of things I had seen over time in the shelter, in rescue, in different areas of my life. And I just got to a point where it wasn't the right thing for me anymore. And I didn't feel like I was doing the dogs or the community justice by continuing to go and volunteer. I had hit the wall. Yeah. And we need to pay attention to that. And we need to have a support system around us to check in on that and make sure that we continue to be well. Because honestly, great, you run a rescue empire and you are literally dying inside every single day and you're not well. That's a problem too. Yeah. That is. One other thing that we really like to see when it comes to ethical rescue is support. What that support looks like can honestly be nothing. Maybe you don't need anything from them throughout the dog's life. Or maybe you have things like I had happen with my Lucy, where we had some behavioral issues and we really did need support. We were new, newer owners. We needed some guidance and we went back to her rescue and we asked for that. And throughout her entire lifetime, they offered us support, even when we moved across the country. And actually when Lucy passed away at 11, I emailed them and let them know that she had passed and we talked back and forth. So I really do like to see ethical rescue equals support for that dog throughout its lifetime and for their family. Because in addition to it just seems like the way things should go, if that group is supporting the family in what they need, that also means that it could be something really small, but that dog stays with their family. And if that dog's staying with their family, they're not coming back to the rescue. They're not going back into the shelter system. And it could be something super small that that family needs advice on. And that support makes the difference in that dog's lifetime. And I will say, we always hope that whoever this dog gets adopted to, that's their forever family. Yes. But But. rescues who stick behind their dog, like who stick with their dog and are a safe place to land. That's important. And I know in Arizona, we have some rescues that are well-known and bigger rescues who will take dogs 
that seemed great. And then if they come back, they'll ship them right back over to the municipal shelter rather than dealing with behavioral issues or health issues, things like that. They put that back on the community mm-hmm. to try to deal with. And I don't think that's I don't ethical. agree with that. I don't agree with it either. And their take is, well, we adopted this dog out as a puppy and now you can't expect us to take every behavior issue back with yes, all the I dogs can. we ad- adopt out. But I do think that's a pillar of being a responsible rescue is standing behind your dogs and standing behind them, even if it means saying this dog's no longer safe for the community. Yes. Maybe at no fault of anyone. Of anyone. Maybe it, maybe it was just wired wrong or whatever, but making those difficult calls instead of transferring them to the municipal shelter mm-hmm. to land on them. Mm-hmm. and when you've gotten the adoption fee for that dog. Yeah. And there are absolutely rescues within our community that we personally know that adopt out puppies that even if they at three years old come back and they have some sort of issue or no issue at all, no fault of their own, they end up not being able to stay with their family. They take them back. That's Mm -hmm. it. It's their responsibility through the lifetime of the dog. And to me, I completely agree with Christy. That is what's ethical. And that is, in my mind, when you're thinking, oh, I want to have a rescue. Not only are you taking in the dogs that are right in front of your face today, what if three of those dogs have to be returned to you in a month's time for whatever reason, that responsibility falls on you as well. So that Mm. goes back to the resources and having a good network. And it also goes back to why we want to make sure that the ethical rescues are the ones that we're supporting. I will say one of the rescues that I fostered for is no longer in business. No, that's not right. Right. It's just no longer a a business. A nonprofit is a business. Yeah. So she, she's no longer running a rescue. Mm -hmm. However, she made a commitment to these dogs while she was in rescue and she has maintained her really, which is really amazing. Wow. In my opinion. In fact, last week she had two dogs come back in the same week. She's no longer running a rescue, yet she has kept her connections, is able to ask people if they would foster for her still. And she diligently works to rehome these dogs because she said, in my contracts, it said, you return the dog to me and I am standing by that. Yes. That's a big step. So I'm saying if an individual can do that when she has retired from the game, Mm -hmm then these bigger rescues can also do that. Yeah. So she's a person who I would be like, Hey, do you can, who do you now consider ethical? And that's who I want to support. You're not in the game anymore. Okay. Who do you support? Because that's, that's amazing. And that is really what things should look like. Yeah. Yeah. I just need to say again, There is a line between ethical and unethical. And my mind is just swirling with all of these examples of people that I have met over the past two decades, where it's like, I just sit here and I'm like, wow, they're doing it right. It's hard as fuck, but they're doing it right. They are putting the animals and the humans 
at the top of their priority list and they are busting their butts to do it as well as possible. It doesn't mean it's perfect because there is no perfect. And because we're human and we make because mistakes. Because we're human. Anytime there's humans involved, there's going to be mistakes. Absolutely. And that's just part of it. Absolutely. But then there's these other examples swimming around in my head where I'm like, oh my God, you're taking on so many dogs. There's no way you can take care of them all. You have them stacked up in your house. You take the worst cases so that you can get the sob story and you can churn that into bringing in money to which Mm -hmm you are taking in even more animals and then you're not adopting them out. And that's the flip side of it. If you're looking at a rescue and they're not moving dogs, they're not adopting out dogs, perfectly adoptable dogs. That is a question mark in my mind. Yeah. And it's not always necessarily a bad thing because some, some rescues do move slower and I understand that because oh, for sure, the social media presence. I know right. I started getting questions about, well, why has Julius been in rescue for nine mm-hmm. months? And I was able to say, you know, he probably doesn't have the exposure on social media that other rescues do. It's a smaller rescue mm-hmm. and they want to make sure that the right home yes. is is found. Yeah. So, because uh, Julius did have applications. It's not like it, that's the yeah, thing. it's not very few but he did and he did have meet and greets it's not like I'm thinking of a rescue that I've adopted dogs from that a perfectly good dog that I owned who was absolutely amazing and sat for years there's no excuse for it yeah dog social people social sat in rescue for years There's absolutely no reason for it. That's the type of stuff that I'm talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so ask those questions. Like, why haven't, why hasn't this dog been adopted? What is preventing some of the movement? And and some rescues do take hard dogs. Oh, for sure. And they take more time. and, And they take more time. But some rescues take perfectly wonderfully sociable dogs and hold on to them for years for no reason two and a half years so yeah so definitely ask those questions look at the timeline too Mm -hmm. and I think that goes back to the transparency point too because you know for Julius for example if somebody came to you and said, hey, Christy, why is Julius taking nine months? Well, what did you answer with? Well, first of all, he's a very large dog. Second of all, he had a couple of meet and greets. A few of them he really botched. Sorry, Julius. <laughs> and you were able to be transparent for all yeah. the reasons why Julius took a while to get adopted. That open transparency is all we're talking about and all we're looking for. Whereas yeah. if you go to somebody and you're like, hey, this dog's been in rescue for two and a half years. Why? And you're looking at the dog and she's amazing. And they are sort of dodgy and don't want to give you a good reason. That makes me kind of question. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think what you said earlier too is a great cornerstone of putting people and dogs mm-hmm. as a priority. I don't think rescue should be adopting out dangerous dogs. Agreed. And it feels insane to have to say that. 
Doesn't it? It feels so stupid to say that out loud. But it's happening. Mm -hmm. And there's so many times that I've had discussions with other volunteers. And we've said, I don't want that dog living next to me. What would happen if that dog got out? It could kill someone or it would definitely kill my dog. I don't want these unsafe dogs who are truly dangerous Mm -hmm. in society. And I'm not talking about dogs you need to manage. Look, there are, there are wonderfully purebred dogs and totally rescue mutt that need management. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about truly dangerous Mm -hmm. dogs. And I don't think, I think sometimes the rescues, man, it is a tough subject, huh? It's tough. It is. It really is. So I think what you're trying to say is that for rescues, that it's complex and that we do understand that. But if, if someone is in rescue and they take in a dog, they have gut feelings about dogs. If you're in rescue and you're ethical and you've been doing this shit for a while, you, you got a gut check, you got a meter. And if you have a question about the safety of a dog that's in your program, Christy might make a face at me, but my perspective is gonna make a face. You err on the side of caution. Is that fair? Yes. Yes, it is. And Um, and to be fair, what does that look like? Maybe you take more time with the dog. Maybe you get a trainer assessment. Maybe you try it in a different foster setup. Maybe you test it with more dogs. I don't look, I'm not erring on the side of the caution of the pink juice every time, Christy. What? No, 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 no. No. What I'm saying is you err on the side of caution where you pause and you say, I got a little gut check here. I wonder what that means. I think I need to assess further. And if that means that you can't intake another dog because this dog has to stay a little longer, that's the right thing to do to make sure that that dog is safe to be in our society. It goes back yeah. to Trish McMillan's The Perils of Adopting Out of Marginal. What I'm going to botch that. What is yeah. it? The Perils of Adopting Out Marginal Dogs? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to link that in the show notes. Everybody needs to read that if you haven't read it already. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about no kill status and the save them all movement, which I feel like get wrapped up all into one Mm -hmm. and what, how that can impact the shelter system and the decisions that they make. Yeah. So have you ever worked at a job that requires you to meet a certain number those good old um, metrics. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a purpose behind the metrics. You can see why you need to meet that number. You understand how it helps the company, blah, blah, blah. But sometimes you just can't meet that number doing your job the way it's supposed to be done. Mm-hmm. And so you have a decision and you decide, I'll cut some corners here. I'll cut some corners. It's there. not going to matter to anybody if I cut this corner. Nope. Nobody it's going to matter to me because maybe my job, my raise is based on it. Yep. So you, you cut the corners, you make the numbers, regardless of if it's the best interest of your customer, your company, you meet your numbers. Mm-hmm. 
I feel like that is what's happening sometimes with that no kill movement and save the mall movement yep. is there's a specific number a live release rate mm-hmm. with live release mm-hmm. in order to be considered no kill. Mm-hmm. And that and no kill status is important to shelters and it, rescues. And it is a movement that has been pushed so strongly by the media and it's been attached to, well, if you're meeting your live release number and you're considered no kill status, you're doing everything perfectly. And it's been built up into this sort of pinnacle that a shelter needs to meet. And people who learn about that, but don't dig a little deeper, might not necessarily know the intricacies and the corners that have to be cut in some situations to make that number happen. And I don't think that focusing on a metrics is how we do ethical sheltering. And I know, I know, I know it's very complex and there's a thousand different factors, but still, I don't think meeting this number across the board for every area because every region is different. Every city is different. I mean, what the hell? We're in Phoenix and we have a major overpopulation problem. And there are other areas in the country that are begging for dogs to come into their shelter system so people can adopt. So you can't even do it in a way that makes sense across the board. I would just like to see some cornerstones of ethical sheltering. Hey, these are the things that that is important for humans and for dogs. And these are pillars of what we are making sure that we follow so that we can do our best to put dogs into society that are safe for everyone. And everyone that are safe because some situations a dog is safe somewhere and they're not safe somewhere else. So look more gray area. Yeah. Yeah. It's so much gray area. Yeah. Every time we say something, we're like, but then there could be an exception. It goes back to the point that we know that this is so complex, but at the same time, I don't think that we can be, I don't think we can say, oh, this is such a complex topic. We're afraid to talk about it because then nobody's talking about it. And if nobody's talking about it, then that's not good either. Which is why Christy and I had anxiety about this. About this episode, yeah. Yeah. And which is why in our discussions, we don't always see eye to eye. True. Because it's so complex. True. Like sometimes what you stand on so strongly, then you think, oh, but what about this exception? But what about this dog? You know, I do. Yeah. I do though think that that no kill status is something that, okay, I'm just going to say personally, I would like to see it go away. Yeah. What kind of monster are you? I know. Who no, I just that and save them all, but I don't exactly. <laughs> I do not. Cause I there's know. dogs well, that aren't don't, safe. Don't stop listening. Yeah. But, but let I've, us explain. Seriously. If you're <laughs> listening to this podcast, I am going to say that you know that not every dog is safe. There is not a farm out there magically taking these dogs who aren't safe to be in our regular society over and over and over again, because here's reality. If those dogs aren't safe to be in society, then only one of those dogs can go to each farm every single time because 
they're not safe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's not, there's not enough unicorn adopters. Like, yeah. Single female living on a hundred acres. That's never going to have children, never going to get married, never. No farm animals, no yep. other, but they yep. just wanted one dog. Just on one dog. Away. Yep. That actually has the skills to keep that dog safely contained. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So when we say like, we're not pro save them all. I know that sounds terrible because like on the surface, who is not in favor of saving as many dogs as possible? I am. We are. We are in favor of saving as many dogs as is possible safely. Yes. When we say we're not in favor of save them all, we mean we've run into dogs that are legitimately dangerous. Yes. That I think Heather and I have both handled dogs where we, once the dog's back in its crate or kennel, we sighed a big sigh of relief that we were not bitten or mauled by that I dog. just had a slideshow run through my head of dogs that yeah. I've handled and I am not a novice handler. No. And there's been multiple dogs that I've handled that have tried to bite other people. Mm-hmm. And thank goodness my reflexes were good mm-hmm. because I, I was able to save a couple people mm-hmm. from being mauled. And I don't think that when people think of rescue, that is not what I want them to think yep. of. I do not want them to think of risky dogs. We so often in rescue say that these are the best dogs. They just have more experiences or maybe their owners let them down. But let's honestly, let's make that the truth. Mm-hmm. Let's make the dogs that are adopted out the best dogs. Mm-hmm. But also when they're not the best dogs, and that's okay. Not everybody has to be the best all the time. Let's be transparent about yeah. what is happening. Yeah. In a recent podcast, a, a different podcast, they talked about people going into a shelter environment and asking for the most difficult dog and saying, we would like to adopt the most difficult dog. Unfortunately, the shelter didn't go deeper and say, well, what does that look like to you? And what do you have in mind? And what are the resources you have? They just took that at face value and said, here's our most difficult dog. Well, it was a dangerous dog. And the couple ended up returning the dog. But after the fact, when they were asked, what did you think you were going to get? And they said, we thought we would get a dog with a lot of management, Mm. but we never imagined we'd get a dangerous dog. That's heavy. And that was a gut punch to me. Of course, people should not expect to get a dangerous dog. Because the people were trying to do something really great because they are that unicorn home that is capable of managing and taking on a dog who might need a little bit extra in the way of behavior or whatever else. But that extra doesn't equal dangerous in my mind. Ooh, that's heavy. Yeah. 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 So when we talk about responsible rescue, those are part of the things that we mean, that the rescue is really considering the homes that these dogs are going to, making sure that they are the right fit, that they're not putting people or dogs in danger. And here's the thing, there is this trickle-down effect, because if the shelter is doing their very best to... Mm -hmm 
and we know that's complex. We've been shelter volunteers, but if they're doing their very best, forget the, forget the number, forget the metrics. They're just assessing each dog and they're doing their very best. And then those dogs are going into rescue and those ethical rescues are going ahead and following those different guidelines and getting the dog into foster and they're learning about the dog and then they're learning the different traits of each individual and then they're able to transparently advertise that dog then the right family is getting the right dog and we now have a good fit versus this dog bouncing around all over and this dog ending up in a potentially unsafe situation because the people weren't prepared or what have you. And then you go back to the beginning because the dog moved more quickly. The dog is never going to come back. Mm -hmm. And we have good, healthy dogs out in the environment. And people are now seeing that. And they're saying, oh, wow, you got this perfect fit for you. And you got it from a rescue? Oh my gosh, can you tell me more about that? And then the cycle continues. This to me is how we do responsible sheltering and responsible rescue. And how, although it may feel like a lot and all these different, you want to maybe cut some corners, you're then getting the cycle to repeat by more people willing to open their hearts to adopting a dog. Yeah. I can't tell you how many friends I have who wanted rescue, went with rescue, got a marginal dog who was not a good fit for their family and ended up with a bite scenario Mm -hmm. and have told all their friends Mm -hmm don't get a rescue. I can't have a rescue because this happened. And it's marketing 101. Yeah. If I'm thinking about doing something new or I'm thinking about making a change in my life, who who are the people that I ask, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. What has your experience been? I go right to my friend pool. I go right to my family and I say, hey guys, I'm thinking about doing this. What has your experience been? And if Six out of 10 people come and tell me a freaking horror story about adopting a dog. It's going to make me really, really question whether or not I'm willing to do that. Honestly, if, if three out of 10 come and tell you, depending on how bad the story is. Yeah. That's still a like, Ooh, man, 30% chance. I'm going to get a crappy dog. Like, Mm -hmm. And I just think that there are so many great dogs in rescue. Oh my God, there are. Look at, all right. I almost said look at Tater. Like I was going to say something nice about him. (laughs) And then you stopped yourself. I felt so messed up. No, but seriously, look at Tater. And we've adopted dogs of all ranges from 14 Mm -hmm. weeks to six months to six years to eight years, you know, and everything in between. We have had so many fantastic dogs in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. So many great dogs in rescue that we don't have to push these dangerous or marginal dogs because there is a plethora of good ones. Especially in Phoenix. In Phoenix. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So many in Phoenix. Yeah. 
I think it's really interesting too. So I was talking to someone I know that is deep in rescue and I asked her, what is the most difficult thing about being who you are? And she told me, and I just thought the analogy was so interesting. She said, well, I just had somebody reach out to me to take in a particular dog from the shelter. And everyone was all over me to take this dog. And I was getting emails, you know, she's getting volunteers. Why are you taking this dog? And she's like, everyone's looking at the tip of the iceberg. Everybody's just seeing that one dog. And they got pissed because she chose not to pull the dog because she looked at as much information as she had, which was the dog had subpar behavior notes and some other factors. And she chose not to pull the dog, right? Mm -hmm. Oh man, did she take a serious backlash? And she's like, it just frustrates me because nobody looks at the big picture under the surface about why I made the decision not to pull that dog. It is so much bigger than that tip of the iceberg. And I thought that is such a clear way to look at it and how these people who are running rescues, if you're doing things ethically, you're constantly balancing a particular scenario with the big picture. And if you are trying to remain ethical and you are trying to do this little balancing act, that's what you're doing day in and day out. You're looking at a particular dog and you are trying to balance that with the greater good and the big picture, because it doesn't just mean, oh, I said no to this dog. Maybe you pissed off six volunteers and they stopped volunteering with you because they were attached to that dog. Or maybe you had somebody who was donating to you constantly and they get really pissed off because they were attached to that dog and they stopped funding you. It's such a, it's a hard, such a hard balance. Yeah. But That also is why I think it's important we continue to talk about it because we need the average person to understand that these decisions are so much bigger than that single dog sitting in front of that rescuer. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you, it is tough when you are attached to a dog in the shelter and you know that their time is coming up. They're It happened to you. Yeah. I mean, Julius, but Mm -hmm. there was a dog before Julius that I just fell so hard for and I could see her deteriorating and I knew her time was limited and thankfully she got adopted. Unfortunately, we don't know who, but she did get adopted. But I remember thinking, I don't know if I can volunteer. I don't know that I can put my heart into this if she gets put to sleep, mm-hmm. because I don't, I don't think I'm, I can recover mm-hmm. easily from this one. I just got so over it. You got really wrapped up in it. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, you're human. Here's the thing. I wasn't even that impressed with her. <laughs> Another volunteer got super attached to her because she looked like one of his old dogs. And then when he got attacked, I saw all the magic that she brought mm-hmm. to the table. And I was like, I love this dog. Mm -hmm. I just love her. She couldn't come home with me, but I loved her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And yeah. And I totally got attached. So I understand it's tough. It's tough 
for everyone. Yeah. And I was so thankful that AZK9 took a chance on Julius because his notes were also not great, but that is why they reached out to me personally Yes, before they took him and said, hey, it doesn't look like his notes are fantastic. What was your experience? Because you had and spent so, a lot of time with him at that point and had been pulling him. No, I, I actually only pulled him once. What the fuck, Christy? You're so irresponsible. I know. I only pulled him Here once. Here we go, gray area. And, and right after I pulled him within the week, he went on the euthanasia list. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I just had a gut feeling he was a good dog. And you I have a lot of experience. Felt. Yeah, you have a lot yeah. of experience. But I also knew I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. Because that happens. But if you <laughs> had been wrong, you would have stepped up and done the responsible thing, whatever that yeah, looked like. And that yeah. is ethics. Yeah, I would have. But, and I just said, here is my experience. Here's what the notes say. But here's how I interpreted what was happening. Mm -hmm. I said, take that for what you, what mm -hmm. you will. And then they had a very similar experience as I mm -hmm. did when they met him and were like, well, yeah, we're moving forward. Cause yeah. everything yeah. you said is what we experienced. Yeah. Too. Yeah. yeah. It's hard guys. It's hard. It is. It really is. We're going to talk about some things that I think are really important and it's ways that we can support ethical rescues. Okay. Yeah. Because we want those ethical rescues to be supported in every way possible so that they can continue to do the good work. Right. So absolutely. Number one on the list is going to be foster homes. I got to say it. We did a fostering episode with Kelsey, yeah. <laughs> go back and listen to it. If you've ever had a little like flitter through your mind, like, Oh, I wonder if I could foster, go listen to the foster episode. So I would say fostering is absolutely at the top of the list, wouldn't you, Christy? Yeah, I would say fostering is a huge one. I will also say volunteering, just not every dog has to be in a foster home. Yeah. Although I think that gives people probably the best mm -hmm. idea of how a dog's going to be in a home. Mm -hmm. But if you can't foster, volunteer. Those dogs deserve to get out of mm -hmm. their kennel every day and have human interaction. Plus it gives the rescue a better idea of who that dog is with multiple people. Yes. And that makes a difference. Yeah. And if you're volunteering at a municipal shelter, those dogs are having a rough time in general. Mm -hmm. Majority of dogs are mm -hmm. not going to be doing great in that environment. So every moment that they get to have human interaction and every moment that they get to have freedom from that kennel space is something positive that sort of refills their cup. And going back to the day fostering, anything that you can do to volunteer at a shelter or a rescue. And volunteer can look like a lot of different things. You might be transporting. You might be volunteering to do laundry. It doesn't just mean that you have to handle dogs. There's volunteer yeah. opportunities abound. It's like yeah. we talked about, maybe you're good at writing copy and you start asking them to help with their social media. It could mean so many different things. Just as long as whatever you're doing you feel comfortable doing it and you're doing it for a shelter or rescue that is ethical. That's what we want to see. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the cool thing about if you volunteer for a rescue and a shelter, I found as you build those relationships with different rescues, I have a couple different rescues who will now 
reach out to me and say, have you had interactions with this dog in the shelter? Mm -hmm. What was your experience with Yeah. Because they want an honest opinion and they've seen me handle dogs Mm -hmm. with them and they trust my evaluation of Mm -hmm. that dog. So not to Mm -hmm. manipulate rescues, but to be an honest person on the other side and say, hey, this was my experience. Yeah, because you can Um, be an ally. Yeah, that's valuable information. Yeah. So obviously... You can always donate. I mean, if you don't have the time and you can't foster, but you got an extra five bucks at the end of the week, or you want to sacrifice a Starbucks, go ahead and even $5. I'm telling you that sounds silly, but $5 to a rescue, if they're getting that from 10 people once a week, that's a big deal. That's several bags of dog food or enrichment items for those dogs or a vet visit. Anything that you're capable of doing when it comes to monetary contributions, that makes a difference. Yeah. I would also say if maybe you're like, "Mm, I kind of want to know what my money goes to. Yes. You can buy goods. Absolutely. um, Too. Sometimes I buy toys or treats or bones, things like that. Or sometimes my dog doesn't like the bones that I Mm -hmm. bought. And it's a whole bag of premium pizzle Mm -hmm. sticks. Cow wiener. (laughs) Um, I was like, is she going to say? (laughs) I don't think Lucy will ever turn that down. But let's say she did. Then I can donate that to a rescue or a shelter in my area, which is a great way to go about it too. And a lot of times there are organizations that will match your donation. So if you want it to go further, find that. I know CCP. Yes. in Arizona, they do a drive every month where you order off their Amazon page and then they match every single thing that is yeah. purchased. That's they Community Canine it. Project. We'll we'll yeah. link them in our show notes because they do yeah. great work. They do. And so, but there's also other organizations that will match too. So find an organization in your area that does that and make your money go further. Mm-hmm. Do a little research for that too. Yeah. So I, I like my money going as far as possible. Yeah. You don't have time. You don't have money. You don't have those tangible resources that you're able to offer. The last thing that I would say is if there is a rescue group that you would like to promote, it costs you nothing to dig a little deeper. It costs you nothing to make sure that the group that you are sharing on your Facebook page or promoting on Instagram or what have you, telling your friends and family about, to make sure that that group is actually following some ethical guidelines. So if you have no tangible resources to give in the way of donations, volunteer time, whatever, but you are promoting and you are sharing certain groups and rescues, please just make sure for the love of dogs and people that they are actually an ethical group. Yes. Yeah. Because you never want to know that you promoted a group that is mm-hmm. is harming dogs when mm-hmm. your whole goal is for the betterment of dogs. Yeah. And honestly, I've done it in the past. I've been involved where I sort of got into the inner circle of a group that I thought was super ethical and was doing all these amazing things. 
And I absolutely shared that group with friends and family and people I knew dedicated time and money and everything else. And then once I dug a little deeper, I found out that I did not believe in this group and the things that they were doing in my mind was not ethical. So that was like a live and learn experience. I think that's part of this episode too, is like we've lived we've learned, we've experienced, and now we're sharing that with you so that you don't have to go through all that heartache and you don't have to go through all that work. This is what we've seen and this is what we've experienced. And here's where we are on the other side of it. And this is stuff that's really important to us. Absolutely. If you've enjoyed this episode, feel free to rate us, subscribe, and share us on the platform of your choosing. Also visit us over on Instagram at sometimes their side eye. Yes. And we are dropping new episodes every other Thursday. And we so appreciate you spending this time with us. Have a great day, guys. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.